Okay, ready, ready? <clears throat> How do I usually start? This is unorthodox. The world's leading to a podcast. <laughs> okay. right, I'll do it. Three, three, two, ready? Three, there's a good cold up. What did I say? This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by two co-hosts. In fact, the only two I've ever had. Stephanie Butnick. Hello. She's a deputy editor. Have not been replaced yet. (laughs) Still here. Deputy editor for Tablet Magazine and her employee, senior writer. He reports directly to her. As far as I could be managed, I think Stephanie's the only person who could manage me. (laughs) We have an amazing show this week. Uh, We are talking to Michael Salamanoff. Stephanie and Liel took a road trip down to Philadelphia to go to his restaurant, Sahav. And then later on, an interview that Stephanie did with Abby Pogerman, who hosts the Parsha in Progress podcast from us here at Tablet Magazine, because we actually have three podcasts. We have ours, we have Israel Story, and we have Parsha in Progress. But first, a little news of the Jews. We go to Cincinnati, Ohio for that news of the Jews. We recorded this last Sunday in Cincinnati. Leo, why were we in Cincinnati again? You know, the two things that we love, it's Jews and learning. So when we heard there was a day of Jewish learning in Cincinnati, we just hopped on planes, trains, automobiles, Sailboats. We we took we took the unorthodox jet. We yeah, did. it's a jumbo jet <laughs> to CVG, the uh, the airport, which is actually in Kentucky, but is the Cincinnati airport. I do have to say the best part of this book tour is that I'm actually learning about what the different states are and what cities are in them and where airports are. Nothing. It's also really hard for people from New York to like have a concept of American geography. It's like, where is that in the world? Nothing blows a Long Island girl's mind like the fact that the Cincinnati airport is in Kentucky. Yes. Yeah, so it was a learning Look, experience for all of us. it'll screw with your geotags, <laughs> for sure. It was a learning experience for all of us, but mostly because it was a global day of Jewish learning, but done locally at the Mayerson JCC in Cincinnati. Have a listen. I'm going to begin by saying hello to a couple of people who couldn't make it today. Dr. Len Singer thought that it was more important to go see his new grandchild in New York City than to be here with us. We miss you. Ellie Sheva Coleman, Dr. Ellie Sheva Coleman. Basically, none of the doctors came today. They're all doing other things. It's especially sad for me that they're not here because I feel this is a homecoming. I actually have Cincinnati heritage. Uh, my grandmother, Rebecca, her grandmother, Pauline Loth, emigrated to Cincinnati. And then promptly left for Philadelphia. He literally says this in every city we go to. It's like, my great-grandpa Walter stopped here for lunch on his way. But it's so weird because I'm like, how much family do you have? I have like, like they it's just, not familiar to me. They just came over a long time ago. So right. they, they like, just went to a lot of... How long have they been here to cover literally every city in America? They pedaled up and down many rivers. And so here, here they are. <laughs> um, so anyway, but it's, it's good to... I feel like this is a homecoming. It's really good to be here. Um, I haven't seen you guys for like a week since we were in Detroit and Denver. What is going on? Like, what is, I want, I want the actual to drill down into your lives. Like, what are you watching? What are you reading? What is life? How you been? Stephanie, what's going on with you? Well, we are on book tour, but that is not my focus this week. Um, my husband, Ben Cohen, he is a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal. I'm, I'm obligated by marriage to say that, I think, at every, at every event. Um, he loves it. It was part of your ketubah. <laughs> Like, plug my book. He has a book coming out in March. And what happens, it's a great book. It's about the hot hand theory and basketball and beyond. It's very interesting. I call it like Malcolm Gladwell meets Michael Lewis. That's how I'm pitching it. We'll be selling it like when I come back. So what happens is you you submit the manuscript and then you get the edits and you do all that. And then what happens is it goes on to like the actual pages. And then you get the first pass and you look at it. So I'm now looking at the second pass of pages, which is very stressful. (laughs) And so he's like, you know, can you read it once again? This is like the last chance to make any little changes that, you know, like errors, nothing big. Editing your spouse is hard. Yes. And I basically, what I've been doing and is a I'm like- a two-writer marriage 
It's an editor-writer marriage. It's an editor-writer well, right now it is. Yeah, which helps. I'm reading it so closely and so carefully. Like, it's the most important thing I've ever read in my entire life, for sure. More important than our book, which is like, there's three of, you know, like, it's going fig- to happen, right? So I'm like reading it, and basically every chapter takes me a day. And so he's like, you know, I have to submit it by Monday. Can you please, like, pick up the pace? You, can, you don't have, like, all week. So anyway, I was doing that yesterday. You're catching today. commas for Ben Cohen. It's very good. So um, Liel, he'll be on the show. He's actually finally allowed to come on the show once he has a book out. You have to publish a book to come on the show as a and, spouse. And marry me. I'm not reading at the moment because someone in Disney about a year and a half ago said, you know who we really need to tap the uh, fat, bearded, nerd, loser crowd? How about we launch an app that has like basically every Star Wars and Marvel thing ever created and then just to mess with them all 30 years of The Simpsons. Uh, and so that's... Is this Disney Plus? Is that's that what it's life. called? That is Disney Plus. So but, it's shocking you made it here at all. Right, but but I want to offer You're several... Red, you have a chair in your... You have a den. I've been to your house. You have a den and an easy chair <laughs> and a tablet. And we may never see you again. Right, no, but it also travels on the phone. But I, I do want to offer... <laughs> is that how apps work? We get into the hotel. Now, I don't know how many people here listened to uh, last week's episode. How many people here listened to last week's episode? Oh, wow. That's very nice to hear. I will say both of our guests listened, so that's worrisome for us. That is a good sign. And so last week, part of our News of the Jews item, as you may recall, was a a gentleman with an Instagram account who took a photo of his rubber ducky uh, on the train tracks to Auschwitz. He takes, it's like a travel photographer who always has the rubber ducky right. in all these sites. And he the most went to Auschwitz. Auschwitz. And so here's the rubber ducky on the train track with the Arbach macht frei in the background. And so I walk in to the shower and what awaits me there? I will say, we're staying at the 21C. It is a very funky hotel. It is a rubber duck. <laughs> I was like, do these people know? Is this like anti-Semitic? Are they kind of like... You know, should I be worried? I thought it was like a very light trolling, but I think they just put them in everyone's room because there's a bunch of cute stuff in the hotel. And so I was texting everyone, did you guys see what's in the bathroom? OMG, this is so funny. And Josh was like, what, what? And his room didn't have a rubber ducky. So then he was like, is this reverse? Like, am I being targeted? Am I like, am I should I be offended that I didn't get one? Wait, is, it, with us. is it anti-Semitism oh, if you one. have a duck or if you don't have we a duck? We were going to buy one at the gift shop on the way out. I totally forgot. We we're going to bring it everywhere we go to all of our shows. <laughs> Continue, continue with the Cincinnati theme, by the way. We think we know all of the ridiculous news of the Jews out there. We think that if anything crazy happens in world Jewry, we are, are, are many sources and researchers, uh, also known as the Internet, tell us. But um, here's one that we missed somehow. Even though I checked the Jewish Telegraphic Agency daily, um, I had to come to Cincinnati where the American Israelite, which is the oldest Jewish newspaper in the world, I think, right? It's been going in America. That's right. Um for a very, very long time, right? And I, I pick it up. name, too. American Israelite, right? I mean, you're bringing back, we're Hebrews. We're Hebrews, we're Israelite. So I, and they have some copies for us in the, in the green room, and I open As it. As per our writer. Per, <laughs> green M&Ms, copies of the American Israelite. I open it to the best headline from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Somehow I missed this. Several turtles have swastikas painted on their shells, and authorities can't catch them. Wait, that's Which, the by headline? the way, literally the slowest land animal. Wait, they can't catch the they turtles? They can't catch or the, the turtles. Who did the swastika? Well, so I'm going to read to you. This is a copywriting issue. I'm going to read to you the entirety of the story here. The whole thing. We're, that's swastika, all we're going to do. We're just going to read the newspaper. This may actually be 90 minutes. Swat. <laughs> No, it's a three-paragraph story. Swastikas have been found painted on the shells of several turtles in a park outside Seattle, and local animal control officers are having trouble catching them. Federal help is now being called in to help apprehend 
to help apprehend the tagged turtles, according to KIRO, the local TV station. The turtles are at Jean Coulon Memorial Beach Park. The swastikas appear to be painted in the wrong direction. This inhumane and offensive act has no place in our community, read a tweet from the local office of the Anti-Defamation League. <laughs> By the way, this, okay, is I have the so- greatest, this is the greatest Jerry Bruckheimer action film ever. It's like, <laughs> Mr. President, the turtle with the swastikas are getting away. So I have several things to say about this. Oh. First of all... Somebody painted swastikas on turtles, which I understand I'm as as a professional Jew, I'm supposed to be mortified. You know, the, the stormtroopers are coming for us. But frankly, like if there are anti-Semitic people out there when they crawl out of their mother's basement and get off of Reddit, painting swastikas on turtles is one of the more harmless things they can no, do. No, that makes me really sad for those turtles. They didn't do anything to but deserve here's the it. Thing. They could have put like smiley faces on them. They yeah. could have done anything right. else. That makes me wonder what drugs were involved. Like what Nazis like, yo, dude. No, yeah, this should we is burn the a problem. synagogue? No, much better, man. This is the problem. Neo Nazis, I mean, who, who knows? This might have been, I mean, this was hateful either way, but it, it's unclear <laughs> to, if it to was. The turtle. No, to the it's turtle. unclear if it was like a mastermind, whatever. Neo Nazis are very dumb. Like, yeah. get the swastika right. We all know how to do a swastika. We know right? how to like, do a swastika. If there's anything you learn coming through Hebrew high school, is like, this is what a swastika looks like. <laughs> you, I will never get that wrong. We will actually teach, if there's any neo Nazi out there, we will teach you how to do the swastika right. <laughs> But Register with us. We will teach you how to do the swastika. And also choose a better animal. I mean, Well, so know? here's the thing. But the turtles, they're like Nazi Navy SEALs because they slip into... So this is why federal authorities had to be called in. Because yeah, they they're, they're in the, the water. Show. They're in the lake at Gene Coulon <laughs> Memorial. Did, did you find him? He's like, Beach no, Park. no, sir. I came and all, I, all there was there was a shell. The turtle wasn't home, man. <laughs> Like, is that what you think? So here's my question. When it says federal help is... Well, first of all, anti-defamation league, God bless you, but it's like slow week at the ADL, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, there's... This inhumane and offensive act has no place in our community. That was a, a tweet, a Twitter thread, a Twitter actually. Thread. <laughs> but the last thing I want to say is, like, when you call in federal help to help you catch the turtles, what federal office do you... Do you like... Who helps you catch swastika-inscribed well, turtles? It's both hate crimes and, like, animal control. It's <laughs> a lot age, of resources. This day and age, I think you call the office of the president directly. <laughs> I think this is a direct line on the red phone. But I have to tell you, yeah. your, your, your copy of the paper is good. I got, I think, a way better you copy. You looked be- below the fold. Of the paper. Uh, this is my new favorite thing in the world. It's a section called From the Pages, which uh, is the his- things that happened in history oh, a while yeah. back. And I, I want to share with you some things that happened in history. First of all, the most amazing piece of news here. This is from November 6, 1919, so 100 years ago. Maurice Isaacs was the guest of honor at a banquet given Monday night by men he befriended in France. I was like, that's great. Because I met some people in France. There was never a banquet given to me. Uh, Jew goes abroad, but then there, is there, befriended. There's just like incredible little pieces that like just made me so happy. 25 years ago, Byline Jerusalem. Uh, dozens of Jewish worshippers, but only a handful of Muslims, took advantage of a brief opportunity this week to pray at the tomb of the patriarchs in the West Bank town of Hebron. Neither group appeared satisfied. <laughs> I'd be like, that is a headline that could be written today, but not as good as the headline from 100 years ago, which begins, the reports from abroad continue to be far from reassuring. Like, that is basically why bother print a new newspaper that is basically Jewish newspaper just like have this and that's it it doesn't matter which abroad what reports I will say this is an amazing paper that Mark when you were reading the turtle story you missed the major news at the bottom of this page was just that Ali Raisman is going to have a cameo in Charlie's Angels the one that just came out the new movie yeah she has one and she will appear in the film now I, I have to go see it I did notice Stephanie that it did not be the third story in that page <laughs> the which middle is story about is Woody Allen Woody Allen ends lawsuit against Amazon over a cancelled movie deal that's like great 
Good luck, good luck with you and your litigation, Woody Allen. I actually think the American Israelite may be the best newspaper want, in yeah, the world. I'm subscribing. I, I think it's, I mean, I've... Do they need new reporters? I've never... You can are tell, you can to, to, Rabbi, you can tell them on Orthodox Game Town said they're the best newspaper in the world. Are they looking for some new employees? <laughs> Do they want to... Oh, my God. Mayim Bialik has a film coming out. Oh, my God. Okay, I need to put this away. Also in News of the Jews, Hallmark Channel is getting into the holiday spirit of Hanukkah, as it turns out. So apparently, as you know, Hallmark Channel does these Christmas movies. which Iconic. are, But now they've decided to, um, to go, you know, multicultural. To branch out. And they're doing Hanukkah movies. So... Stephanie, do you want, do you want to read the first description of, of the first movie? There are two of them. Well, the second... So one of them... I don't know what the title is. One of them is. is called, like, Hanukkah Date. Hold on. Sorry. Okay, how about this? The second movie follows Brooke, a woman who undergoes a breakup shortly before a trip to introduce her boyfriend to her family for Christmas. She enlists Cohen's character, Joel, who is Jewish, to impersonate her beau. But since he celebrates a different holiday, shenanigans ensue. So the plot line of this movie... <laughs> So anyone who's ever watched a Hallmark Christmas movie knows that, like, the plot is not really the point. I don't know what the point is. The point is just, like, the, the Merry Christmas glow, I think. Um, but And just sort of, like, the ridiculousness of it. But, okay, so this is a woman who breaks up with her boyfriend and has, still has to go home for Christmas, and they're expecting to meet a boyfriend. Who's so a Christian she, boyfriend, a Christian, presumably. Yeah, right, course. a proper yeah, Christian a boyfriend. boyfriend, right. Um, and so she finds, like... Her, Joel Cohen. Yeah, like her bespectacled work pal brings him <laughs> down and like, will they find out that he's Jewish? Is the, is the plot of this movie. They, of course, fall in love over the course of this. But like, what is it about Christmas that you could not understand? And it ends with a, a beautiful person. intermarriage. But it's like... That's what, basically the point of the movie. It's, I mean, my worry is like, I've been to Catholic Mass. It's kind of confusing. You don't know when you do all... Like, there's a lot of like movement. But that's not, I don't think, what they're talking no, the about. The comic relief would be like, so, son, how do they decorate the tree in your family? Uh, I've never <laughs> seen the tree. What, really, what do these people think? Where do we think, who do we think we are? Like, where do we live? It would be really in interesting if we controlled that industry and right. we could make proper Hanukkah movies. Correct. That's, I'm just saying. Like, if you want evidence that we don't control Hollywood... There but you then go. There's another movie. But here's the plot of the other one, according to a synopsis sent to us by their publicist. This is even better. Career-minded Rebecca's. Rebecca. <laughs> Which is already that is offensive. Rebecca. Really an anti-Semitic statement. Career-minded Rebecca. Rebecca's. She's very pushy. She's also a brunette. <laughs> Career-minded, brainy, wordy. <laughs> Rebecca's plans for Hanukkah go askew. What? <laughs> The more I read this, the more anti-Semitic it becomes. Go askew when a promotion opportunity comes up at work. See, she's pushy. When the company CEO asks Rebecca and her insufferable office mate, Chris. That's an, a microaggression. A microaggression right there. Also, her main competition for the promotion to plan the company's Christmas party, she realizes they must overcome their opposing styles in order to succeed. Forced to work together on the holiday party, Chris learns more about Rebecca and her family's Hanukkah traditions while she also begins to see him in a new light. Another, another story of a wonderful intermarriage <laughs> between them. Yeah, that's great. Although feelings slowly develop between the two, the ongoing competition over the promotion threatens to undermine it all. Starring Carly Pope and Christopher Polaha. Christopher so, spelled with a K and two Fs. Pope and Christopher are the stars of this Hanukkah movie. That's right. Guys, I want to say I cannot wait for this. this and sounds basically amazing. sounds like, you know, The Office meets Schindler's List. Like, it's a really weird... <laughs> Um, Thank you, Hallmark. Okay. You know what, Hallmark? We're okay. We're good. Don't worry about <laughs> it. We're, we're all good. We'll make the movies about us. You do you. From now on, we'll do yeah, the like, Jews, okay? Christmas. I can't wait to see their other holiday movies, you know? The Shmini Atzeret story <laughs> on the Hallmark channel. It's like Tisha B'Av. Right. Some, like, some Gentile ends up at a Jewish camp, and he's like, what's this sad day we're all talking about? <laughs> 
This Tom Gedalia, <laughs> Rebecca. <laughs> but in happier news, a record has been set for the world's longest challah. It was in Australia where a bunch of people got together. Chabad had to have been involved. I don't know how. It wasn't in the news item, but I feel very strongly that the Chabad house of some Australian town was involved in this. And they made a record-setting challah clocked in at more than 32 feet long and used over 150 pounds of dough, and it took 10 hours to bake. I want to say that the thing I appreciate about this story is that like, they didn't tell me how many like kilograms it was. 86 kilograms. Oh, because I... Did. Oh, so you translated this. I translated, yeah. I, I, know, okay. I, I knew you'd want to know. I knew you'd want to go metric. Here's the question. Did they have one really long oven? Or did they knit it to get... Did they, if you reassemble it afterwards... Yeah, I mean, does it have to be like contiguous? Wait, does someone know? You know the answer to this? Hi, my name's Elena Scheinert. I, this is not how I wanted to be known on Unorthodox. <laughs> um, this is just the beginning for you. Right. Right. <laughs> so much more to come. She was discovered at the Mayerson JCC. <laughs> so anytime that you get... A not good pizza, like from Domino's or, God forbid, Papa John's, what they do is they put it through a roller oven. And that's why it's so fast, because it has just like a little treadmill that it goes through. And so that's all you have to do with the challah is just put it through and it's baked and somebody's got to stand there and get the other end of it, of course. And so it just goes through and bakes. And that's probably why it took so long. Oh, so it's like a conveyor belt. Yeah. But you actually need a lot of people on the other end to hold it and pass it down, right? That's you where need... Chabad comes in. <laughs> they have all the shluchim. There were 14 women named Mushka. So if there is a holy grail of Jewish food, of Israeli food in America, there, if there's a Mecca, what is it? It is not just a holy grail or the Mecca or the Kotel of Israeli food in America. I think it's probably the Kotel of Israeli food anywhere, including Israel. It is Zahav, the Bet Hamikdash of Israeli food in Philadelphia, run by the genius, the Rebbe, Michael Solomonov, who had won all the James Beard Awards, the Oscar of cooking, and uh, my, my hero. Can I say that? So Josh, tell our listeners what we did on one crazy day in October. So we had to get kids to school. Liel dropped his, I dropped mine. We cleared our schedules. Cleared everything else out. Got in a car. We built our appetites. Oh, I hadn't eaten for four days beforehand. Uh -huh. We got in a car and headed to Philly. And and here's the thing. You're soon going to hear the interview we did with Michael Solomonov and his business partner, Stephen Cook. And they're so smart and so thoughtful about all the ways that Israeli food is really kind of coming to its own, especially in America, and about what it's like to try and bridge these very different culinary traditions. But here's what you're not going to hear. You're not going to hear what happened immediately after the interview, which was, as my grandmother would say, a fris uh, or a big, big eat of, of epic proportions. Stephanie, what did we have? So when we get to Zahav, they have uh, an amazing array of pastries from their new bakery, Kfar. So we eat those. We got it. You know, we have to sample them. So they say, you know, where are you going after this? And we're sort of like, you know, got to get back to the city. We have a, me have a meeting at three. And they say, you can't leave without stopping by our falafel place, Goldie's, and our donut shop, Federal Donuts. So they basically called the restaurants and we show up at both of them and are just presented with bagfuls of amazing food. This is heretical for an obese Israeli to say. I really dislike falafel. I find it to be like deep fried cardboard for the most part. It just looked flavorless dreck. But two bites of this thing, it is arguably really, I think like Earth's, like the world's greatest falafel. And it comes 
with a thing that had you described to me, I would have kind of like probably made a face. But it is, I, I, I don't know. I'm going to go out and limit it. It probably is the most delicious thing I've tasted in probably, I don't know, five years. Josh, tell him what it is. I can't even talk. I'm so choked up. This was a vegan tahina Turkish coffee milkshake. Holy crap. Mike told us after when we were talking and I was packing up that, no, this is what you need to order. And when Mike Solomonov says, at my restaurant, this is the thing you need to order, you order it. You order it. And you, you, you might doubt, but no, no, no. He was correct. And unlike regular milkshakes that just leave you feeling like so bloated because you're a Jew and lactose isn't your thing, this one really... Yeah, the vegan thing was important. Oh. But you guys haven't even said anything about those shawarma dusted fries. I ate about three bags of them in the back seat. Um, and the donuts from Federal Donuts, which were great. Can we say radio is uh, is a you know it's an audio uh, medium. Uh, it does not uh, convey smell. Uh, but this is really one of those moments in which I really want you to imagine what that car smelled like. Imagine all the beautiful shawarma, falafel, <laughs> vegan trina coffee. It was a delight. It really was like driving in the shuk. Traffic on I ninety five was never mobile. was it was the shookmobile. All right, let's listen to our interview with Mike Solomonov and Steve Cook. We have made a pilgrimage today. Liel, Josh, and I drove to Philadelphia to come to Zahav, the pioneering Israeli restaurant, and we are here with Mike Solomonov and Steve Cook, the co-owners of. Zahab, as well as other Philly staples like Federal Donuts, Diesengoff, Abe Fisher, and Goldie. They co-wrote the cookbook Zahav, A World of Israeli Cooking, and this summer welcomed their newest dining outpost, Kafar, an Israeli bakery and cafe. Welcome, I'm welcoming you to your own restaurant. Thank you for having us here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and before we even ask you a single question, I don't think there's a single person in America who I'm like more excited to be in the room with. If this is like Bob Dylan or is like it Mick me? Jagger, it is you, Stephanie. I'll be like, okay, well, whatever. You could write songs and shit. Mike, really, your your work has inspired me and, and other gentlemen of, of nobler proportions such as myself. What you do here is unreal. It really is. Uh, any of our listeners who haven't been here yet, should really come here because it's magic. Thank you so much. Well, I, I was on this train early on. Well, yeah, we, there were, there I, I know from Israeli here. food, and this is this is literally as good as it gets around the world. Thank you so much, man. It's great, great to have you guys here. So we're here at Zahav. Tell us about this place. We opened Zahav in 2008, and we wanted to open an Israeli restaurant here in our humble city of Philadelphia and not in New York or not in L.A. And Steve and I had met a couple of years before that, and Steve hired me to be the chef at a his restaurant, Marigold Kitchen. And we were sort of toying, like we were cooking new American food there, but using Israeli ingredients. And then it just, it, it dawned on us at some point that we should just open an Israeli restaurant. Israeli restaurants at that point in time in America were sort of like, hey, welcome to the place where you have the schnitzel and the salatim and right. the shawarma, very good in the pita for $12. Did it not kind of like scary that you're walking straight into the stereotype? They didn't do it in as good an accent as you did with that. Yeah. We were scared. I mean, we pitched investors on the idea and that was the question they asked, like, where's the falafel? Right. We stood our ground because I think at that point we had realized that if nobody else was doing it, that we wanted to be the pioneers. And there was some some teaching involved, but we wanted to show people what Israeli cuisine really was. Tell me about this teaching, because now you are winners of the James Beard Award for like the Oscar for best restaurant on earth, this place right here. But there was a, a learning curve, right? People needed to understand what Israeli cuisine was. Tell me about this journey. People were sort of curious, but they weren't, maybe they didn't get it. We weren't explaining it very well and they weren't coming back and we would have nights 
you know, now we'll do like 300 covers a night here. And there were nights, I think we did 35 covers. 15, 16 sometimes too. We had a menu that was in English characters, but you know, Hebrew transliteration, you know, no explanation in English. Right. So people were like, what is Malawach? Or what, you know. Or they'd say, what's Maluch? <laughs> Maluch. <laughs> you know, like a stuff that makes uh, yeah. Shabbat morning. <laughs> what, what do you mean? So we had to get out of our own way a little bit and kind of meet people where they were, so to speak. And yet, at no point did you really give up on, on the conceit of the authenticity, to use a, a, a bad word, right? Because you didn't do the thing in which you're like, oh, this is now served with chickpea paste. Like, you actually kept true to the core. So how did you find this balance? When we first opened, we were trying to be as authentic as we could, but it was a detriment. Context is sort of everything. And I'm like, I think my shakshuka is very good, but it's like not the same thing as eating shakshuka at Dr. Shakshuka in Yafo, like overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. And I think that like our guests don't care how true we think it is, you know? So at one point, I think this was probably around the time where we like had to borrow money from my dad and it seemed like we were going to just close. I remember very vividly Steve saying, listen, like you're making this mackerel dish very authentic to a Bulgarian juice, but like, honestly, nobody gives a shit. Could you just cook? Could you just be a chef? And I think that was arguably the most important part of our journey because it allowed us to look at all the different facets that make up Israeli cuisine and put it together on one table or one plate. We are not bound by tradition here. If you go to Israel and ask an Israeli where the best Israeli restaurant is right now, what is the answer? The answer is, what, what does that mean? You know, there's Libyan, there's Bulgarian, there's Palestinian, there's like all these different things. But what is Israeli cuisine, especially there? And we have this sort of luxury of being able to take the Yemenite and the Bulgarian and the Ashkenazi and the Moroccan and shake it up a little bit and have it incubated here in this place with a growing season that is nothing, a climate that is nothing like Israel. So we have to get creative. We can't do Salat Aravit 12 months out of the year. We have to do something else instead of tomatoes. We have to be creative. What's on the menu now? Give us a sense of a few things and maybe how they've changed since the beginning. Just about everything has changed. The hummus is probably... Like the, the recipe is the same, but we like the process is different. We don't just make a big batch of hummus in the afternoon and serve it. We whip it, puree it, chill it. And then throughout dinner service, we like are re reblending it so it gets warm and smooth. The lava is basically the same recipe, except we've started adding a little bit of Pennsylvania wheat. And we actually developed a starter. So our dough is actually sour, which is not something that you would get in Israel. But everything else kind of changes. You know, we always have like a version of halloumi cheese on the menu. It used to be back in the old days, it was fried sort of the dates and apples and walnuts. And now today we wrap it with kataifi, the shredded filo dough that you made the kanafe with. Serve it with pomegranate and we make like a honey syrup that we pour tableside. I guess we can just be a bit more whimsical. But there's nothing that is like exactly the same. And even though... There are signature dishes that maybe the customer wouldn't know. Like the key to what we do, I think, is constantly evolving and changing and reinvesting, you know? It's almost like the, the food itself or like the restaurant is an immigrant, right? An Israeli who came here, tried to make it, understood that some adjustment was necessary. So what was the moment in which the natives, right, the locals here in Philadelphia, uh, really got what it is that we, you were doing? Do you remember like a specific night or season or year or review or something that you said, wow, now we struggle? Well, I think that the format of the restaurant, the format of the meal constrains it a little bit in a good way and ties it to Israel because the way that you eat here uh, is the way that meals typically begin in Israel no matter what nationality the owner of the restaurant is, you're going to start out with hummus and salatim. Mm -hmm. 
and move on to meze and then finish with things that are grilled over charcoal. And so figuring that out, in the very beginning, we didn't have that format. It was just sort of like build your own meal out of these foreign sounding dishes. So when we did a, um, like a restaurant week here early on and the restaurant week format was sort of geared towards traditional restaurants that's like appetizer, entree, dessert. And we had to figure out how this sort of small plates restaurant with all these different categories of dishes was gonna fit into that. So we we sort of shoehorned it in to the, to the restaurant week format, but at the same time, it, it really started to develop that Israeli table, that sort of procession of foods. And that's when it really clicked. The customers came in here and they were some choices to make, but they didn't have to start from zero. We were sort of telling them how their meal was gonna go. Yeah, and I think the kitchen almost like met the customer. We like knew the cadence and the flow of how things should go. And it wasn't just ordering three skewers and like three salads or anything like that. We had a really hard time translating to people how they should sort of eat. And we made it very difficult on ourselves and them. And I would say 90% of the people that come in here eat that format. We sort of encourage them to do that. But then you get people who want to order a la carte and frequently we'll just send them save, <laughs> save them from themselves and send them the whole package because they, they might not know it when they're ordering, but they'll know it afterwards. Does this bring to the fore the fundamental differences between how Americans eat and how Israelis eat? Well, I mean, I think Americans are always sort of asking themselves that question of how are we supposed to eat. But I mean, it's very typical to go into any restaurant in Israel to sit down and have like 15 salads, hit the table before you even are greeted. Or what's Israel, so you're not often greeted, but you know, <laughs> uh, pointed at, you know? And, and maybe that was part of it too. I remember when before Zahav existed, we were sous vide and using all these chemicals to do cool stuff. And then you'd get off the airplane and you'd go to like Busi and Shechonot Tikva, mm-hmm. and it would be like lafa and 20 salads and all this like meat and offal cooked over charcoal. And you're like, why? This is what we want to eat. <laughs> this shit's delicious. It's delicious, and it's not fussy, and it's like the way that people have been cooking for definitely longer than we were sous vide food, and there was like politics and conflict and commonality all put into this first course that was effortless and very vegetable forward and sharing in small plates, and it's kind of like that's the way that everybody wants to eat. I think that Americans embrace it. Tell us a little bit about your personal backgrounds, where you are from. So I was born in Israel, moved to the States, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when I was three. And then we moved back to Israel when I was 15, and I was like back and forth for a couple of years. But I've been in Philly since 2001. We moved here the same year. We lived next door to each other, but didn't meet. I don't know if this is true for you, but I think we both lived in Philly now longer than we've ever lived anywhere else. I grew up in South Florida in the Midwest, and I came to Philly for school originally and then moved to New York lived there for a while and New York's a great place to live. I just knew I couldn't do it. You know, Philly is like a, a little village in comparison to New York. And um, You have remade this little village, Philadelphia, uh, into this culinary empire. Tell us a little bit about the other places that you've established since. So I'll, I'll start with Abe Fisher uh, because I like to describe it as the inverse of Zahav. I mean, Zahav really tells this, this sort of Israeli story where all these cultures that had been dispersed over, in some cases, hundreds, in some cases, thousands of years throughout the diaspora, they all returned to this place. And they'd all, you know, they had one thing in common, which was, was you know, being Jewish. But they had all these different cuisines, and that sort of coalesced into something that some people would call Israeli cuisine. And then Abe Fisher is sort of the opposite. Abe Fisher is what happened in the diaspora, especially on the Ashkenazi side when Jews settled in Europe and started to adapt their culinary and religious traditions to the food and the culture of the place that they were in. So it's much more Ashkenazi. It's much more what people, I think, maybe up until recently would have conjured in their minds when you said Jewish food. So that's Abe Fisher. We try to have a little bit of fun with it. I mean, our signature dish there is a Montreal smoked short rib. So we take a whole plate of short rib, we cure it in the Montreal style, we smoke it 
we confit it and then we serve it with our house-made rye bread and a bunch of different accoutrements. And that's the sort of showstopper at the end of the meal there. We- Sounds like the egg cream. Oh yeah, we do. <laughs> Dessert's been on the menu for the for the whole life of the restaurant. It's called the bacon and egg cream. So it's a maple custard with a, a layer of like Oreo cookies that are crushed up with rendered bacon. And then on top, we do a chocolate foam to mimic the, the seltzer. And that's, we were having fun with it. I mean, Zahav follows certain guidelines of kashrut. And we created this fictional character, Abe Fisher, and he was this man of the world. And he was very Jewish, but also enjoyed <laughs> Trafe. It was very Jewish in his love of Trafe. Exactly. Which I think is very Jewish. It is. It's our love of bacon. It's not even tray. It's like bacon, I feel like, has its own category in Judaism. I always assumed Dave Fisher was a real person who was like one of your uncles or something. Ironically. <laughs> the names are borrowed from our, from both of our families. And some of the details with, that we built his character around are, are true to life. But he did not actually exist, if I yeah. can say that on the air. Yeah, you can. I did. So then came Dizengoff? Dave Fisher and Dizengoff came at the same time. They actually share their kind of the same restaurant. We didn't know if like a humusia would actually work. So we decided to open the Abe Fisher and then 500 square feet humusia called Dizingoff where it's just, you know, hummus, a couple salads and fresh handmade pitot and it like kills it. In the summer months, we actually do more business out of that 500 square foot humusia than Abe Fisher. We have three Dizingoffs in Philly. And then we opened Goldie, which is the falafelia and it's just falafel Again, in our handmade pitot and french fries. And then Steve came up with an amazing idea to do trina milkshakes, which are vegan. So it's actually a vegan restaurant. And we make these milkshakes with trina, almond, and soy. And they're like unreal. So when you guys are going over to get donuts, yes. you're going to Federal Donuts today, you, you'll go to Goldie. And you should eat the falafel. Personally, I would compare this to anything in Israel. I think it's really, really good. The th- stupid thing about falafel here, maybe in Middle Eastern food or Israeli food in general, is that A, it's like pita should be like dry and cardboard which is false, right? The falafel should be big and dry. And then you should have some salad bar where somebody like makes your sandwich and you take apart some sandwich and put a bunch of stuff in there. It doesn't make any sense. And the good falafel shops in Israel, the person that owns it or the person that makes the falafel is the one that knows how you should eat the falafel. They build sandwiches appropriately. And I feel like that's kind of what He's the falafelier. The falafel, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and usually it's like a generation or two of somebody making a sandwich. And when I went to, I went to boarding school in Pardeshana and in Karkor, a town next to it, there was Devorah's falafel, which is my favorite falafel ever. It's a very good place. It's excellent. And the son of the owner, the founder, was the one that made my falafel when I was 16 years old. And up until just a year or two ago, they just sold. I mean, it's still fantastic. Up until, so from the age of 16 to like, you know, 30 eight or 39, the same person has been making the falafel sandwiches every day that they've opened. So when you train the people who work at, at Goldie to get that good old kaku vibe right here in Philly, what do you do? Because these people did not grow up in Pakistan. They don't have the kind of falafel shop, you know, imagination. We bring them to Israel. You, you take them to Israel. It's mandatory. Caitlin, not, not mandatory. And Caitlin, I mean, after we opened Goldie, we went to Israel with her. But we've been plenty. And, and I think that we understand the vibe or the affect that like you sort of need to make it real i don't know there's something about street food in that country they don't try too hard like the ingredients are pristine and there's just a confidence and there's like a comfortability of it that makes it easy and here we have a tendency to like you know we have to not show off necessarily but we have to like imply certain things like with the food so showing restraint i think is one of those things that's quite important right now we are eating pastries from your new bakery kfar could you tell us about that yeah, so Kfar is, it means village in Hebrew. And I started cooking in 
a bakery called Mafiata Kwar, which means village bakery in the town of Kwar Saba. And it was sort of by accident. And I wasn't to become a baker or a chef even, but it was just the only place that would sort of hire me, you know, and then fast forward like many, many years. You know, what we want to do is sort of continue to add to this village that we built here in Philly. It was just the right time. We have our brilliant executive chef there who was our award-winning pastry chef at Zahav, Camille Cogswell, and it just, the stars sort of aligned and it was time to open this bakery. At what point did you realize that this was the calling? At what point did you lift a pita you had just made and said, huh, I'm good at this? I mean, never, and I still, to this day, I'm like, I don't really, I think the moment you start sort of like believing the things that you read about yourself is like a problem, you know, because there's so much... So much room for improvement every single day. And I think a big, huge flaw is uh, in our, with people in our industry is when they start like resting on their laurels. It's never a good sign, you know? So uh, there was never really any aha moment. I remember cooking and falling in love with it and really saying like, I am good at this or I can be good at this and I really love it. And I'd never really done anything before that had made me so happy professionally. And I think like growing up, probably with undiagnosed like ADHD and getting into a place where you like all the sounds and the intensity and all the different like things happening at the same time, being able to make things with my hand was really, I don't know, I felt like I'd come into my own. 10, 15 years ago, people not necessarily would have known, unless you're really into it, who the famous chefs were now, partly because of reality TV, partly because of the internet. It's, it's like a real big obsession. How do you deal with that? And especially how do you deal with that when, when your style, when your soul is rooted in this very earthy, I don't want to say casual, but very connected to the place, the feel. How do you keep away from all this noise? We're very disciplined you, you have, in keeping away from the you noise. You know, we're pushing 350 employees who have who have needs and and there's always you know we spend a lot of time trying to create a company that people want to work for and even doing that we're constantly hiring we're constantly solving problems i mean there's really no time to as mike said rest on your laurels i don't know if it's because we're jewish or whatever but i think being neurotic both of us is like <laughs> makes it hard to sleep sometimes but i think it's probably a good thing in that you know our guests can't eat awards which means we can't eat awards. Like the bigger Mike's name gets or the bigger the name of our company gets, the expectations of our customers grows, which means it's much easier for us to under-deliver. For me and I think for Mike, it's not about making money or or winning awards. It's about feeling proud of what we're doing every day. It's a huge motivation to go out and deliver for the customers who may have been waiting for 60 days. They're coming from out of town to eat at this restaurant. Better be fucking good. And if it's not- We haven't done our job. It's really comes down to our neuroses. Well, and the fact also, I think that we're like very emotionally and maybe even spiritually invested into what it is that we do, right? This is more than a business for us. This is more than um, than a company. This is this lineage to like who we are, where our families have come from, what story, what narrative we're trying to tell. This is a lot and this is really big. And I'm proud to say that we are not about ourselves. You know, we really want to give as much as we can. In hospitality, you sort of have, to, if you want to be good at what you do, it's really about how much of yourself you can give to other people with no expectation of return. And if you come down from New York and have a meal and have you waited two months and it's not excellent and you aren't transported emotionally back to your childhood, back to walking around Corsaba, going to the mall or Herzliya on the beach or eating pita with like stuffed with chocolate spread in like Tachtonim or whatever. That's right. If you do not have that, then we have not done our job. But the, on the other side of that, what's really interesting is that for a lot of Americans, you guys represent, you know, Zahav represents Israeli food. And so I wonder if there's a pressure on you guys or you feel a pressure to be 
you know, a lot of people don't go to Israel, right? So like, this is what they're getting. I wonder if that's something that weighs on you or you consider. Yeah, definitely. We've built an industry or we've built a company on, on these, on this transportation sort of travel storytelling thing. I and mean, we don't really do concepts that aren't related to who we are. So yeah, definitely. Maybe the first time I came here, I had this expectation of I'll be transported back into like my childhood. Now I, I kind of just want to be transported back here, back to this particular reality, which to me stands on its own two feet as a representative of something wonderful. And so I want to I want to kind of like pry into that, what that thing is. Because usually when you hear people talk about Israeli cuisine, you'd hear something borderline cliche like, well, you know, there are all these Israelis, there are all these Jews, and they come from all these places around the world, uh, and yet they live together. And so there are all these flavors, and you know, there's the Libyan and the Egyptian and the Syrian and the Ashkenazi and whatever, it fits together nicely. But that always felt to me like it was just one ingredient short of perfection, that answer. So I want to prod on that. What is it that makes Israeli cuisine, or if you'd rather, what is it that makes Zahav, which I really think is like the epitome of this, so perfect? What, what's the secret ingredient? I think it's hospitality, which maybe is another cliche, but, you know, I think it's seeing Mike behind that pita oven, you know, making everybody's bread with his own hands. I think it's the connection. I mean, it, in, in some ways, you know, Zahav has come to be a stand-in for Israel for a lot of people who might not ever go there, who might not have been there, or who might go there a lot and have all these fond feelings about it. They can, all those feelings can come together in this one place and can represent something bigger than just this one restaurant in Philadelphia. But at the end of the day, like, we want people to walk out of here feeling special, feeling like better than they walked in. I mean, it's really as simple as that. Because Zahav is so associated with Israeli cuisine, there's all that additional meaning. I mean, Israel is a country that probably conjures up more emotions than most countries. I mean, everybody's from somewhere and everybody <laughs> loves where they come from. But I think because of the unique history of that little strip of land, the, the feelings are particularly intense. And I think Zahav is, is a little bit, a little moment of that in people's lives, whether they've been there or not. Earlier this spring, Tablet, which is, you know, our spiritual home, our spiritual and professional home, came out with this book, The 100 Most Jewish Foods, which Mike, you wrote the Kugel entry, which is amazing. But there was an interesting thing where the thread of the book is that you can actually tell a lot of the Jewish story through food. And I wonder how you see the Jewish story changing, you know, if, with your experiences with all these restaurants, you know, what people in Philadelphia are ready for, you know, if it's a humusia, if it's a falafel, like where you think we are now in the Jewish story? That's a great question. I mean, I think that coming from the States, even though you know, it's hard to say. I, th I think that Jewish American food is very different. I think that because people are so into food and because people that make food are so now into where they're from, we're not hiding or running away from where we were. Um, I think that it's just like articulating it a little bit better. It's less of a, if you want to get authentic food or tell the story of like diaspora, it doesn't happen necessarily on Shabbat table. It's happening now in fancy restaurants. There's publications, there's a kosher culinary magazine that's like actually quite fantastic. Fleischig's? Yeah. I am obsessed with it. Super. It's so well designed and high quality and you would never expect that. It's amazing. I mean, think about what kosher food was versus what it is now. Think about what Ashkenazi food was versus now. And I think it's just whatever is happening. I think I do feel like we're a part of it and we're helping to tell the story. And I think it's great. I think at some point, like food diplomacy will be sort of on the docket as more traditional forms of diplomacy are sort of failing. And I think that um, specifically Ashkenazi food, nobody's really tapped into that yet properly. Would love to be a part of that as well. So, so let me ask the uh, dark side of Stephanie's question, which is really kind of a two-parter, and this goes out to both of you. So first of all, what local American food stuff are you guys obsessed with as a sort of guilty pleasure that people would be surprised? And then the second part of this question, 
What trend in cooking, restaurant, culinary world do you absolutely despise? American food. I mean, like Reese's peanut butter cups. I eat like a gazillion of those. I love those. In terms of like junk food, I don't know. There's a convenience factor that like destroys all of it. And there's like quick and fast. And I still appreciate fast food. I'm not above fast food at all, but I'm not sure if I despise anything just yet. What am I sick of? Well, despise is a strong word. I think that there's been a real movement, and we are sort of part of it, although we've kind of taken a different tack. It's a real move for chefs or business people to say, like, I've got this concept. Things are called concepts, and it's a cookie cutter, and I'm going to roll it out. You know, I'm going to be the Chipotle of this, this cuisine, the Chipotle of that cuisine. And they don't say Chipotle, they say Shake Shack now. Now that, yeah, right. <laughs> You're not tempted to be the Shake Shack of Philosophy. We were, we, we are tempted. We were tempted. We're less tempted. I mean, we've had a couple, we've, you know, Federal Donuts in Miami. We've had a decent golf in New York. There's specific reasons why we're not there anymore. But I just feel like food is such a personal thing, especially the food that we do. It means so much to us. How could you possibly communicate that in 500 stores across the country without sucking everything out of it that made it good in the first place. And I think there's a lot of money that's been poured into this industry to do that. And there's going to be a lot, I think, of money lost in that. And we're happy, I think, to kind of plot along here in Philly and be proud of the food that we're serving. So no Shook Shack for you guys? Shook Shack, that's good. Ooh. Can we use that? Now there yeah, should of be, course. yeah. Shook, shook Shack. Then, Mike, if food diplomacy is the future, what is the dish that's going to save us? I'm not sure if there's a dish that's going to save us. I think it's this, again, I would totally make fun of myself for saying this, but it's the ability to like sit down and disarm, I think, with like tradition and with hospitality and it sort of exists, I think, with food. You know, we get a pass. Sometimes we get a political pass. I mean, depending on who you ask, right? Because we're a restaurant that has notoriety and there's like a little bit of coolness and I'm friends with people that are left wing and right wing and all those things. And they don't really give a shit as long as they can come into the restaurant and eat, yeah. you know, and nobody's ever gotten up and left the restaurant because of like my politics, our politics, and it will still pine for reservations. And I feel like there's a bit of popular culture with cooking and still a, a bit of mystery to get people involved enough. And I think that's kind of where things have to be. But it feels different. I mean, if you're a Spanish restaurant, right, you're just cooking the food of Spain. If it's Israel, everything is so much more loaded and intense. And here in America, I mean, we're also just obsessed with who does hummus belong to? I mean, how do you deal with that factor of this isn't really just a normal country for whatever reason. This is something that is so weirdly controversial to so many people it definitely is but it's like i don't know part of i guess we're, we can be very cynical i mean we're like in america of all places what's american food you know and what's the statute of limitation on cultural appropriation you know but also i think that food is about change and adaptability and the way that foodways works is usually not by like pleasant or peaceful methods and i think instead of focusing on conflict. I mean, there's so much commonality in what it is that we do. I think the narrative just has to be different. The reason that people want, it's just easy. The conflict is easy. People shooting each other, ripping each other's heads off, sells way more papers and gets way more hits than like any sort of kumbaya action that also exists currently. There is coexistence plenty. There is sharing. There is um, open discussion about people that are like thinking positively about things. It's just, we're less interested in that. And that all does seem to revolve around food. Those conversations, those are happening over meals, right? Shared um, meals. I mean, I think it's very easy to do that. I mean, like if you think about very simply, like what we call chopped cucumber and tomato salad here. The answer here is that we call that Israeli salad. Jews in Israel call that an Arab salad. Mm -hmm. 
and nobody gives a shit about it. And it's like, fine, you know? But I think that when you start politicizing things from this angle, from this vantage point, it becomes a problem. Everybody wants to make a story about it. Everybody's got an opinion about it. I mean, America's capital of land and cultural appropriation and things like genocide and all those things we do here on, you know, we're having this discussion on stolen land. So it's just easier to sort of look 10,000 miles away and have an opinion about something when you're sitting in your armchair at home flipping between whatever news channel you decided to, to turn on. It's hard because you can't, it's so much more complicated than that. And there's such an easy, there's a tendency to just wrap things up in a crisp little packet, have your opinion and go on with your life. What we know is that it's like all gray area. And that like, when you think about, even in this country, I mean, Tex-Mex, any Mexican food could be loaded. Southern barbecue right. did not, come by a peaceful method whatsoever. And if you think about things like sumac, which is something that grows here wildly, was taken by the Pennsylvania Dutch from the Native Americans to make like pink lemonade. It's the same souring agent. Hold on, is this where pink lemonade comes from? It's yeah. sumac? Yeah. That blew it was a Native, that was a Native American it. beverage. Oh, wow. And when the Pennsylvania Dutch settled here, they stole that huh. and uh, that's how we have pink lemonade. every day in the salad. Yeah, but that day. was the sour ingredient in the Middle East there were no lemons until the Moors brought lemons 700 years ago. So like food just gets around. It's just kind of what happens, you know? I mean, I think that when you're talking specifically to like Israel and Palestine, of course it's loaded. Of course things get conflated and they're like highly emotional and it's very difficult to not peel away the onion layers and get into it. But I mean, food is something that we all share, that we all love. So let me ask you one final question. This one is to both of you. Our listeners who have not yet had the pleasure of your company, if they were to pick one of the two cookbooks, I'd like each of you to give one recipe that would be a pretty good introduction into the gestalt of the house. Gestalt, that's Israeli, right? Yeah, very. It's a <laughs> old Hebrew word. It was my last name before <laughs> I was changed. <laughs> so we have two cookbooks. The first is called Zahav, A World of Israeli Cooking. And then the most recent book is Israeli Soul. I'll take the easy way out. I mean, I think you would take both cookbooks and turn it to the hummus recipe in each. And the first one is based on the one that we use here at Zahav every day. And the chickpeas are soaked overnight and they're cooked. And then we make the hummus out of them. And it's transcendent and it's amazing. And uh, it takes 48 hours of planning. <laughs> and then we did a recipe in Israeli soul, the second cookbook called Five Minute Hummus, which can be made in five minutes out of canned chickpeas. It's a very good stand-in for the flavor profile of our hummus. And I mean, to me, it's like hummus can be, you know, it's such a simple food. It's such a, it's a food that's shared by so many different people. And it can be the centerpiece of this fancy Ishmael Zahav that you've waited 60 days to do, or you can like make it in the morning and set, put it in your kid's lunch. It spans all different all different kinds of meals and settings. Um, for me, I would say the kanafe in Israeli soul is so good. It's so simple, and you make it in a pan, and it's got that like warm French toast thing. Will like you say what that is? Yeah, it's sh this sort of like shredded wheat. It's extruded dough, basically, so it looks like dried noodles. And then you just put that on a pan with butter, and you toast it, and you melt like ricotta. Or do we use ricotta or mozzarella? We use mozzarella. Mozzarella. Um, and they use akawi in, in Israel, but you can't get that here, really. And uh, it sort of melts, and then you like pour syrup on top of it, and it's sweet and almost savory. And you make it with one pan. And then the Zahav cookbook, it's another dessert, but the carrot baspusa is like so good. Baspusa is a originally from Egypt, but you find it 
everywhere now and even the Balkans, like the Ottomans took it to like Greece and Bulgaria and stuff. Um, but it's a semolina cake that we enrich with like carrot juice and shredded carrots and, and ground hazelnuts instead of almonds. And it's like super good. So now our listeners know where to go when they're in Philly. But can you give us like some Israel recommendations? Like what is this? What's the place to there's go? so many of them. Azora. Azora is sick in Jerusalem. And there's one in Tel Aviv that's also really, really good. Doc is really good. AB. Yeah, we're opening a restaurant next early soon uh, called laser wolf named after the butcher from um fiddler on the roof and Amazing. it's it's going to be a shapudia like a skewer house a couple places we've gone to a lot recently that kind of were drawing inspiration for one is it's a kakadol in, in yafa which is you know it's like the israeli version of a steakhouse um you get like how many salads like as many salads they can fit on the table and then you order your grilled meats and that's sort of like on the fancier side and then there's this place uh, morris in mm. Huda that like doesn't exist during the day. And then like when the, all the merchants close up for the night, that market kind of comes alive and it's plastic tables and oilcloth tablecloths and one guy with like a fistful of skewers and a hair <laughs> and a hairdryer over a tiny little grill. It's so good. Just grilling meat. What does the hairdryer do? The hairdryer fans the coals, keeps them, you know. Oh, Stephanie, come on. I, yeah. Like you don't do that in your apartment. <laughs> I use a, a, a flattening iron okay. for that. Much better. But just so simple, so elemental, so fun in those two sides of the same spectrum of a very Israeli way to eat. Yeah, M25 is really good too in Tel Aviv. Habasta is really good. Pakosam is really good. This is like a good itinerary for someone's opera, trip. Go to Opera and Chadera for the best Yemenite soup. So, so good. Haj Khalil, the shawarma place in Yafo is amazing. What else? A couple of Sabih places in Tel Aviv. Oh, Chernikovsky, Frischman. Oh, yeah. Super good. You what? take Phil Rosenthal there, right, oh, on his show? Oh, yeah. yep. We went there after that. It's a Libyan place called. Oh, Guetta. Oh, my God. That place is sick. And Yafo, the couscous is unreal. Vitisha, which is a, a Bulgarian place in Yafo as well, is really good. Shishko, which is Bulgarian in Tel Aviv. Port Said, which is fun to hang out at. Uh, Chatzot for Jerusalem Grill. Sick. So good. The kosher McDonald's in the Tzomit up north is pretty okay. I, you know, I got banned from McDonald's in Kfar Saba, dude. And I, so when I moved back, I moved back when I was 19. I dropped out of school. I learned how to work at a bakery and then I cooked. And then I was there for a year and I was like, you know what? I just want like chicken nuggets. And uh, I wait in line to pay like 50 shekels for like seven shitty chicken nuggets. And right by the canyon and uh, right by the mall in Kfar Saba. And I'm waiting in line. I wait in line. I finally get to place the order. And this like older woman man comes over and elbows me out of the way and places her order it was such an israeli moment you know and then i start yelling at this like poor well it was she did it she she pushed me out of the way she wasn't totally innocent i start yelling at her start yelling at the cashier because i was like over it i lived in israel for a year i just like needed somebody to say please and thank you yeah. like once you thought like at a mcdonald's <laughs> that's where you'd find your civility <laughs> exactly <laughs> and uh, the manager jumps over the counter and he's like Oof, me, Paul. Like, don't ever come back again. Whatever. Do you think they'd let you back now? Now they'd like to picture you on the wall. What an origin story! It's like, fine, I'll open my own restaurant. I was like, I'll be back. <laughs> this is <laughs> right. This is not the last you've seen of me. Funny thing is, there's no reason to eat fast food in Israel, man. It's so the street food is so goddamn cheap. It's so good. It's so vegetable heavy. It's just unreal. Even the schnitzel places, even Nachnikiot, like hot dogs on lachmaniot, on the airy baguettes with like cucumber and tomato and trina and harif. It like it's elevated, man. It's the best. Mike Salmanov. <laughs> yes, yeah. I think we all should go. 
to all your restaurants and then we'll all go to Israel to uh, yeah, go to right. every single restaurant you named. Um, Mike Salomon of Steve Cook, thank you guys so much for having us at Zahav at this cathedral, this Mecca. I don't know what the right religious uh, metaphor is for where we are. Yes, exactly that. Um, Thank you for having us at Zahav. Thank you. Thank you. That was our conversation with Mike Solomonov and Steve Cook. Stephanie, this is a special week for us. We have a lot of events. So many events. So many events. And we have actually very, very good events. I'm not actually, not that I'm surprised, but I'm just very excited about Tell them. Tell me about two of them that I won't be at, but that'll be in New York City. You were invited. You couldn't make it. Just like you weren't excluded Right, from I wasn't them. excluded. Check your spam folder. The email's there. We promise. Uh, today, Thursday, November 21st, we will be at the Center for Jewish History. We're doing a very fun event, and it is being moderated by our own super producer, Sarah Fredman Ader. Tomorrow night, where will you be? The Sutton Place Synagogue for Shabbat. We will lead services, we will cook you brisket, and we then we will tell you everything about Jews. And we're going to be doing that all around the country. Places that we're coming to in the near future. The Leash Tag Foundation in San Diego. I will be in Madison, Wisconsin right before that giving a talk. And while I will not be with you in San Diego, I will join you a few days later in sunny Phoenix, Arizona. We're coming to Naples, Florida. We're also going to St. Louis. Meet us in St. Louis. And then... I just have to add one to the majorly long list of oh, events. Oh, no, you don't. I'm adding a solo no, event. No, you don't. Oh, my God. Tuesday, December 17th, I'm moderating an event with our own producer, Josh Cross, and Dina Kraft, the journalist behind the Branch podcast, which comes from Hadassah. So find out everywhere we are going to be at talibag.com slash unorthodoxlive. And tell me, because I'm losing track. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. 
We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. So something we talk about on this podcast a lot is this idea of Jews feeling like they don't know enough about Judaism and that they aren't good enough Jews because they don't know every blah, blah, blah. I don't even know the examples to use. That's the idea that animates one of the other podcasts that Tablet produces. It's called Parsha in Progress. Picture this, an Orthodox rabbi who knows everything about the Torah and the Talmud and the journalist who knows exactly the right questions to ask. That's Parsha in Progress. It's not dumbed down, it's made modern. And even if you've never paid attention to Parshas before or you read them every week, this is a show that you will get something out of. Each episode's only about 10 minutes, so it's a really, really nice dip into that week's Torah portion. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Abby Pogerbin to talk to her a little bit about the podcast and the rest of her work. I met her at Central Synagogue where she's an active member and even a former president. We sat down on the pews in that beautiful place and she talked to me a little bit about why she decided she wanted to learn more about the weekly Parsha. I am here with Abigail Pogerman, the author of My Jewish Year, 18 Holidays, One Wandering Jew, and the host of Parsha in Progress, another tablet magazine podcast. Abby, thanks for meeting me in synagogue. It's so irreverent. Can you tell me where we are right now? We are in Central Synagogue, which is almost 180 years old. It's auspicious. It's auspicious. It's, there's a lot of history here. It's a, I would say, formative reform synagogue. It really is the synagogue that changed my life because I grew up without one. It's moving to always be here. So it's weird for me. First of all, we're in the front row at synagogue. Even though it's empty, that still feels like very intense for me. <laughs> Why? You know, usually I like to like sneak in like the left side, way in the back. Um, but it's also weird to be in a synagogue when it's not a high holiday, when it's not a Shabbat service, when it's not a right. bar or bat mitzvah. I didn't even know we were actually allowed to come in here. Right. There's, isn't this not teeming with Jews? I mean, I wouldn't say like everybody can just wander in here and like read the paper, have lunch. <laughs> but I will say that I think it's, I mean, I don't know, I won't speak for you. I think it's pretty spiritual to be here when it's empty. I mean, it's amazing. I've actually only seen this place while live streaming high holiday services. Well, you have to come on a Friday night. I can't say enough about just walking in at the end of your week with 700, 800 people here. You walk out very differently. It's like a, uh, a reset. So we're sitting here. There's these insanely high ceilings, there are arches, there are columns, there's stained glass. Chandeliers. Yes, there are these like beautiful wooden pews. What, where does it, where does this come from? So this is, I think it's called Moorish Revival Architecture. The architect based it on the Dohani or Dohini Synagogue in Budapest. The congregation was German speaking in its origins. I mean, I, I find it truly one of the most extraordinary spaces in the world. 
I don't think that's an overstatement. And there are tourists who come just to, to see the space, even if they don't come to services. I mean, I took the subway here. I walked down Lexington, you know, in like the crazy, in the, in the 50s. It's not the most peaceful place. And then you walk in and you're right. just like, where am I? I've been transported to totally another realm. Okay, tell, where's your journey? Where do you where do you start from that you end up at Central Synagogue and then ultimately writing this book about learning about all the Jewish holidays, yeah. the Parsha podcast? Like, where, tell, let's start from the beginning. I would say it's not a straight line, um, but it starts on the on the Upper West Side, like so many Jews. And I was kind of a, a home based Jew. My mother was raised very observantly, and for very personal reasons, left observance for a number of years, and I kind of fell in the cracks. My twin sister Robin and my brother David and I, we just didn't have a formal education, but we went to synagogue on high holidays. We were kind of wandering Jews. Um, we didn't belong. We didn't kind of have a Jewish home. I didn't speak Hebrew, go to Hebrew school. I was not a bat mitzvah. And then I sort of go on to my life, and it began to bother me what I didn't know. Fast forward, I have my first child, and that's when, you know, you get that tug that you hear about of, like, what are you going to do with this kid? You're going to say that he's Jewish without being able to explain it, without being able to anchor it in something true for you because you haven't really investigated this. Believe it or not, I explored it for the first time by writing a book about famous Jews. I didn't kind of go on my own path. I chose to wear a journalist's hat and interview Steven Spielberg and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Kenneth Cole and, and Larry King about their Jewish identity. How did they raise their kids? That, that book, my first first book was, it came out in 2005, and it's called Stars of David, Prominent Jews Talk About Being Jewish. Each chapter was an interview. But for most part, these high achievers were not highlighting their Jewishness. And that was something to listen to. Do I want to differentiate? Do I want to understand what I come from so that I can pass it on or reject it? Like, I, I was sort of unmoored and was tired of feeling at sea. You were unmoorish. I was on Moorish. You know, so how do you get to you're Central? You're it all back. When do you end so up how there? do I get to Central? Kind of late in the game. I didn't actually start looking for a synagogue. I went to a bat mitzvah. That was one of those light bulb moments that, that sounds completely cliche, and, and you might be skeptical of it, but I, I sat in these pews over there. And how far back? And so, <laughs> I was far back. <laughs> I, was in the, I was in the your mode of like, I don't necessarily want to be seen, and if I happen to not be following along for a minute, I don't really want to call attention to myself. And next thing you know, I was in another zone. And I'm a pretty kind of hard-edged, skeptical New Yorker who suddenly felt like God was in the room, honestly. Like, I, I don't say that lightly. I mean, to win you over, you are a journalist. You are you are not, you know, like this woo-woo spiritual time. I am not. Maybe I, now a little bit more. Maybe but. a little bit more. But, you know, it was 2006, and I walked out of here. And, you know, you're going to go to the, like, party later that night. I called my husband, who wasn't with me, and said, we have to join. And he's like, what are you talking about? You've just been to one service. You haven't even been to a Shabbat. And I said, we have to join. And I did. And so I didn't have a look back. So when did you decide that you wanted to start reading the weekly Parsha and do a podcast about it. What is the Parsha? Like, where does where where is this in your journey? I think just in terms of my journey, my most recent book, which is My Jewish Year, took me through the Jewish holidays, or at least I want to say I took on finally trying to understand the arc of a Jewish year. I'm not an observant Jew in the sense that I'm not an Orthodox Jew, and I'm not going to fast six times on a regular basis. But I wanted for the first time to fill in the blanks of what does Shemini mean today and why does it matter? And not to sit back with my arms folded and say, like, prove to me that this is valuable and worth my time, but to say Shemini or Sukkot or Shavuot, they've endured. There's got to be a reason. People are busy and they have a lot of options. So when something lasts, I believe there's got to be magic in it. Something that can speak to you, 
that can deepen your life, that can challenge you. And I wanted sort of a taste of that because I, I never quite understood it, felt it, and in a way felt almost entitled to it. I sort of felt like I missed the boat. It's too late. I'll never understand it. And it's kind of too late as an adult to start. And so in a way, I sort of took my own, I guess, pessimism on and said, why don't you one time take the full dive? I interviewed over 60 rabbis and scholars, approached it as a journalist. I, I do want to understand the, the you know. And Som, explain, right? I, and yeah. explain. Like, tell me what Som Gedalia is, the fast of Gedalia. Oh Who was Gedalia? It's our official fast day of an Orthodox. <laughs> So I'm going to tell you. I know you feel so strongly about it. And moved. Yes, you're like, I've done the holidays. Done the holidays. How else can I mark it? How can I measure a year? Well, it's, it's also like it begins, I guess this is sort of revealing my personality. It's kind of when I begin to understand how things fit together, I want to investigate what I still am missing. I have read the Torah before, but I've never talked it through particularly with someone who What does it mean to read the Torah before? Good point. What language are we talking? We're talking about reading it in English, the five books of Moses, and there is essentially a chapter every week. And when you go to synagogue on a Friday night, you hear that chapter. Some rabbi is hopefully giving a sermon about it and describing what the basic, you know, what they call shot meaning is, and then going deeper to give it some kind of modern relevance. What I had never done, and particularly in dialogue, which I think is how our tradition tells us to investigate this text, is to talk about it and to talk about it with someone who maybe wasn't coming at Jewish ideas or ideas, period, with the same background and perspective. Namely, Dove Linzer, who comes from kind of the other end of the spectrum on observance. He's an Orthodox Jew. His life is ruled by every ritual calendar, and I would say mitzvot. He is the president, the current president of Yeshivat Chovavei Torah. It's a mouthful. YCT is how it's known. It's a seminary that trains just men, and they get their ordination there. And he and I met at a conference years ago, and we hit it off. And again, part of what was interesting about our friendship is that we have nothing in common. <laughs> you know, how many times do you say that? You know, I have nothing in common with this person, but we have so much to talk about. And so he asked if I was interested in doing this with him. And I thought at first, like, this is going to be like, I am the dumb reformed Jew talking to the erudite. Being spoken down to. Yes. Or, or not yeah. even just spoken down to, but like, I'm going to be the sort of starry-eyed, tell mm. me, Dove, you know, what what does it mean to, um, you know, do the Sota ritual where the woman has to eat dirt and her belly distends or it doesn't if she's committed adultery? You know, there's moments where I, I, I'm asking him a lot of questions, but he's also asking me questions. And that wasn't some kind of feminist take, although some might interpret it that way. That was kind of what I think Torah should do, which is the democracy of investigation, the democracy of dialogue. It should not be that some person is this sort of superior teacher. I mean, someone may know more about some part of it. But ideally, if you're not both bringing yourselves to it, then frankly, it's a one-sided conversation. I don't think it's as alive. And it means that only one person or one type of person gets to have this, right? But what I love about the show, and in particular your role on it, is that you are the, you're the every woman, right? You're the every man. You are the, the person who is, yes, familiar with these stories. And you offer really, really interesting and often quite modern insights um, on the most recent episode. It's about Moses being shown the promised land, but, you know, understanding that he's never going to get there. And you bring up Martin Luther King. And... Dove brings up Maimonides. And there is like this really, really interesting interplay between those. So can you actually share what the Martin Luther King connection is? Because it was just so fascinating to yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, what, what's amazing about this Parsha is that it's it's kind of the finale. It's this, it's the, we're going to go into the promised land without the person who took us there. 
We're going without Moses. Moses doesn't get to go. First of all, I think a lot of people don't realize that the hero of our Passover story never gets the reward of Canaan. He never gets he the find the Afikoman. He doesn't find the Afikoman. That's so well put. And there is this speech that Martin Luther King actually, based on the Bible, right? It's his Bible too, of um, when he says, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. I get chills every time I say it. I'm such a sap. I may not get there with you, but I've seen the promised land and we're going to get there. And that's essentially what Moses says. And Martin Luther King used it as a template. We know those words, right? They're iconic in our country. And what what more than that tells you how vi- not just vibrant, but urgent, I think, Torah is even in our, our moment right now. So a lot of people, maybe people who are listening, have maybe only been to synagogue for like a bat mitzvah service. Where do they see the Parsha in action? So basically you have this story, and it's the Torah. And there's five books. And in those five books are chapters. And in synagogue, you read one chapter per week. And so when a rabbi gets up there and gives a sermon, or where, when a bar bat mitzvah kid gets up there and gives what they call a devar Torah, essentially, they have gotten their parsha of the week. They have been assigned their chapter, and they have to talk about it. So if it's the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, which is one of the more famous stories when Abraham has to take his son up to the mountain. And when you take a story like that and you're a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, you have to figure out how you're going to personalize that story. First, you tell it. Usually mm-hmm. this is how a Devar Torah works. You first explain to the audience, essentially people in the pews, what is happening. And then you have to somehow make it relevant for today. That's what this book challenges us to do, whether you're 13, 30, you know, or 80. This is the book that we can unpack year after year the same exact chapter. We are going to read the Akedah every single year. And that's a rabbi's challenge, but it's also each of ours. And without getting kind of hallmarky about it, I think either you're in or you're out. You either see this as completely disconnected with your life and you go, as you said, to synagogue and hear a speech and go home, or you suddenly see this actually is making me think about what I just did yesterday in my business practice or how I handled my child's temper tantrum or what I chose to give for charity or any of these things that are actually speaking to your life today. And I think once you start doing it, you see it everywhere. You will see it in a political speech. You will see it in a movie script. It's like, I didn't even know Torah was there. And there it was all the time. I feel like Torah reveals itself again and again and again Like, we're missing so much when we don't know the story. So it feels like with Parsha in progress, you're really doing something similar to what we are trying to do on Unorthodox, which is making Judaism more accessible, more interesting, more engaging to all sorts of people. So I'm curious who you think your listener is, who you want your listener is, who the right person is for this show. I'm hoping that these are folks who otherwise may not engage the Parsha of the week and if they do, might have been otherwise bored by it. And I don't want to be so audacious to say that we are scintillating, but we're certainly certainly lively. We're being very honest. And we have great producers in Josh Cross and uh, He's Shira, sitting right here holding the sitting boom right mic, here so. and Shira Talushkin, who are constantly saying, I want to know what you think. Like, I think you're struggling with this, Abby, and you're not being honest enough about it. Or what is the hurdle for you here? Just tell us. Like, they're constantly pushing us to not necessarily, like, be dutiful students, but also honest human beings who are saying, this pisses me off, or this is really moving to me. Like, this actually kind of changes the way I think about X, something like charity. Uh, We did Parshat Amor, which is about how you should leave the corners of your fields. You have these fields, you're wealthy enough to have land, but you're not supposed to take it all. 
Like that is a, to me a very challenging, animating, urgent idea for this moment. We shouldn't essentially hoard even what is ours. Like I deserve all those strawberries and beans, but our Torah, our foundational text is saying, you know what, Abby? You should leave those corners and you don't even know who's going to benefit from them. It's not about someone giving you an award. You just leave them and you don't know who's going to eat from them, not go hungry because of them. That to me is like one of those little gems that changes the way I think about giving charity. And I hope that people, and what I'm hearing is that, you know, someone will say, I had never known that was there, or I've never thought of it that way. When we talked about a very fundamental question, Dove, do you feel God in synagogue? He was kind of like, no. And that was an Orthodox rabbi saying that he doesn't feel spiritual in synagogue. I think that's kind of a eureka to me. And I do. So that's one of those examples where we are not on the same page in ways that might be unexpected for a listener. So are there other instances where each of you sort of come out on, on surprising sides of, of an issue or a, of a practice or a ritual? I think one of the false assumptions of this podcast that people arrive thinking mistakenly is that Rabbi Dove Linzer is the observant Jew who feels God everywhere, is observant all the time, and has fewer, maybe not none, but fewer conflicts with what is demanded or expected of this tradition or what's in the text of the Torah. What's sacred. Of what's sacred. Not true at all. And I'm the Reformed Jew who, and Reformed Jews are not, you know, it's not Judaism light, but we have essentially had a more modern iteration of our tradition. So I'm not necessarily kind of feeling God as much, even having a dialogue with a deity the way he is. That just hasn't necessarily been true. And obviously it's very personal to us, but some of these conversations have kind of revealed the fact that Dove is sometimes struggling at times that I'm really not. Uh, one example was on Rosh Hashanah, you know, Rosh Hashanah afternoon, after you've been at services, you're supposed to cast your sins, throw your sins away physically, to essentially physicalize expiation by watching your sin, like taking this breadcrumb from a little piece of challah and throwing it in moving water. So at Central Synagogue, we go to the East River, a whole bunch of us, and we say some prayers and we think about our sins and we throw them in the water. I loved doing that with my kids when they were young, because if they needed to understand how their sins were going, they could see them. He was so dismissive of Tashlik. You know, it was one of those, like, emperor's new clothes things. He, he just thought that is a facile, lazy shortcut of atonement. Like, don't tell me you can throw your sins with breadcrumbs and water. Do the work. That's not the work. And so that became a really interesting conversation because I pushed back and said, for me, I actually am doing work at that point. Every time I throw something, I'm thinking of something I'm really not proud of. I'm not going to get rid of it, but I hope I can improve it. I'm not going to give myself a trophy for the work, but don't tell me that that's just lazy. Or that it's not meaningful. I mean, the idea, it's just the physical embodiment of this metaphor that we're supposed to be casting away our sins. We're beating our chests. What better? I mean, it's And how many times exactly does concrete, our tradition yeah. tell us, move, do something. And it, not we, in synagogue. And not, in, right, and not in synagogue. There are things we are told to do that actually, as you say, suddenly physicalize the thing we've been saying or praying. And make it real to both children and adults. I mean, it's such a great example to me of exactly what it is that this whole holiday is about. And I think sometimes when you come later to the table, you appreciate them more. So final question for you, how has immersing yourself in the weekly Parsha and doing Parsha in progress changed the way your week works, how you approach the weeks, just like sort of the calendar of your life? First of all, I'll admit to you that it's hard. It's hard because I have great humility about this text and the number of people who have entered it and mastered it, and I'm nowhere near it and will never get there. So it's daunting, and it's also sometimes deflating to start to do my research, which I, you know, I'm pretty anal about, just the reading that I'm doing and trying to absorb a lot before I kind of even try to figure out what I think about it. 
I'm not just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. I want to get to, by the time we're recording our conversation, which is very much like whatever happens in the room happens in the room, I kind of want to have, have you know, some undergirding, almost journalism, to understand what it is we're talking about. That's a long way of saying that I'm constantly feeling inadequate to the task. That's my Jewish therapy. And so I have to, in a way, keep reminding myself I'm entitled to it. Like, this is yours too. Has focusing on this weekly thing changed sort of the rhythm of your of your day-to-day life? Yeah, I think, but first of all, the ha- you have to kind of budget in time to learn. You have to budget in time to think. You've got to go back to Torah every week. That That is altering for me in a way that I actually appreciate because I think otherwise I wouldn't prioritize it. It also makes me feel, and this is a little, it's going to sound a little woo-woo, connected to my ancestors, connected to those who have come before in a way I didn't expect to feel. I love that. Um, Abigail Pogerbin, writer, journalist, podcaster, Parsha in Progress, comes out on Mondays. It's 10 minutes, so you can listen on your commute and spend the rest of the week digesting the wonderful discussion. It's available on every podcast platform, all apps. You can also find it on tabletmag.com, and you can find My Jewish Year and Stars of David wherever you get wonderful books about Jewish life. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much. So, terrific episode, nice road trip. Stephanie, have any Mazel Tovs? Okay, guys, I need to give a I need to offer on our behalf a group Mazel this week. I hope you're I hope you're with me. We had such a good time in Cincinnati on Sunday. We were part of their Global Day of Jewish Learning and it was a lot of fun. You'll hear that episode in a bit. But until then, we just wanted to give our biggest Mazel Tov to Jackie Conjado and Shayna Jaffe for having us, for helping us get there, and for organizing an amazing event. Yeah, I'm absolutely happy to sign on to that Mazel Tov. Co-sign. Stephanie. I am going to co-sign that Mazel Tov group Mazel Tov from all, of us, from all of us, the big three to the big C. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Call us with your thoughts. You could email us, but we like hearing your voices. 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. If you want to buy stuff that has our name on it, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. The hint is shirts because we make shirts and they say unorthodox and you can wear them. Follow us on Instagram or on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman-Ader. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. And our theme music is by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. And rabbinic supervision this week by the stunningly named Rabbi Miriam Turlingchamp from Temple Sholem in Cincinnati. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but today we came to you from Philadelphia, Connecticut, New York, Cincinnati, and, well, Ha'alam Ba'ah, the world to come, baby. Shalom, friends. With our own producer Josh Cross and Dina Branch, the the and Dina, Dina and <laughs> it's cool when you take the last name of your podcast. I'm Johnny Unorthodox. <laughs> that's that's my that's my corduroy name. I'm Johnny Unorthodox. <laughs> <laughs>